right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Hebrews 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4, let's go ahead and uh, read that together. Um, Verses 1 through 16. These are the words of God. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you shall seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Verse 4, For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain um, day today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we have come to you this day to gather as your church to give you our entire lives as an act of worship and humbly ask that you would grant your promised rest to us as we seek to live faithfully and obediently under your sovereign rule. We know that unless your spirit awakens us, we will succumb to hardness of heart and stubbornness of volition. So be pleased with the preaching of your word and the teaching of your word and may your spirit cultivate our hearts so that this word falls on good and productive soil. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. There is a terrible theological problem that has plagued the church in our day, and it has to do with words and their conjugate definitions. These aren't just any words, however. They are words that carry deeply meaningful definitions to the Christian faith. And to twist... And malign them is to disestablish Christianity from and in society and thus render biblical faith impotent. I'll give you two examples, um, two words and their opposites, and they are central to our passage. The first word is faith, and the second word is obedience. Equally a part of our concern here, and especially in, in our text, 
are the opposite words that correlate with these as well, that being unbelief and disobedience. So faith goes with obedience just as unbelief goes with disobedience. The theological problem that I'm talking about has to do with how these words are artificially separated and thus proclaimed that way from our pulpits, as if one could even possibly separate faith from obedience and unbelief from disobedience. Because the church at large has attempted to separate these concepts, we now have a society bent on thinking that one can objectively possess the Christian faith apart from any real meaningful obedience to what it demands. Thus, we have antinomian Christians running around, for example, fornicating with anyone willing, abusing alcohol at every turn, addicted to pornography, all the while saying things like, only God can judge me, as if that's something we should take (laughs) refuge in. Uh, We have created a false category of Christianity that says that one can have both Jesus and autonomy. One can have the God of the Bible and also have arbitrary self-law to govern himself. Jesus tells us in John 14, 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will disclose myself to him. In other words, no one, no one really has Jesus in, if his life is marked by disobedience to the law word of God. No one really has Jesus if his, his life is marked by disobedience to the law word of God. So living by faith means living in obedience. True faith, the kind of faith that is alive and well, works. That's how this whole thing works. Verbal professions of faith, like those of the Israelites in the wilderness who did not enter God's rest, those verbal professions that are not backed up with fruit are simply filthy rags. So this type of faith can save no man. A man can say that he loves God, but until his life is marked by obedience to the God he says he loves, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. So faith and obedience is one apparatus in Christ. They are two sides of the same gospel coin. So you might be thinking, well, what does this have to do with Sabbath rest we're reading about here in Hebrews 4? Great question. Uh, I'll give you the answer. All right, I'm going to give you the answer up front. I'm laying all my cards on the table at the get-go, uh, and then I'm going to explain it as we go, and then you'll see kind of how this um, thought process works in Hebrews 4. The reason we must take care of our hearts, we must take care of our hearts. Proverbs says in chapter 4, I believe, right, that it's the wellspring of life. The reason we must take care of our hearts and examine our lives which we are warned to do so in Hebrews several times over, including in our passage here, the reason we have to examine our hearts is because true Sabbath rest in Jesus Christ is marked by faith and obedience. True Sabbath rest, the the marking of it is by faith and obedience in Christ. It is not marked by a day, though there is a Sabbath day. That's, we'll get into that later. But true Sabbath rest, in a broad sense, is faith and obedience working together. And that's because Sabbath, 
rest is tied to the dominion mandate. And we'll see that as we look at Genesis 2 in a little bit. Sabbath rest is tied to the dominion mandate. Now, so that's the answer. Like, that's where we're going. Uh, you could walk away now and, okay, well, that's what he talked about. But I don't understand the argument, right? So you have, I'm going to build the argument for you, and um, we'll sh- I'll show it to you in the text. <clears throat> We learned uh, in chapter 3 that Jesus is building his covenantal house in the world, which is commensurate with his kingdom, and that we are to be careful not to provoke God through unbelief and disobedience, because if we do this, we won't enter God's rest. Psalm 95, that's quoted in chapter 3, and it was read by Brother Aaron. Uh, Psalm 95 serves as a warning not to repeat the same problem that Moses had to deal with. Don't, it's, it's an illustration. Don't go that route. Jesus, he is the greater Moses. He is the son who is over the house. He's the owner, the deeds in his name. And so because of all that, we're told to stand firm. We are to be obedient to Christ, our high priest. But listen, if we don't obey him, the consequence of that is an evil heart. And we'll develop an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. If anything in Scripture should terrify you, it's that. Falling away from, not the church, not all this, falling away from the living God. Now, when we get to chapter 4, we have to realize that this is still one continuing thought related to chapter 3, and then it launches us into the rest of the book. In chapter 4, verse 1, you can follow along there, we are told another warning. Let us fear, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, which is true, it remains, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. We need to do all of this from a position of fear. Why? Right, not fear of man, fear of God, of course, and all that. But why do we need to do that? Because the promise of rest remains. The promise of rest is still a promise that we can tap into through covenantal obedience, Obedience to Christ. So rest in history can happen. It, it, it can happen in history. So you don't have to just think, oh, good, you know, um, when I get to heaven, then I'll rest. Okay, you will in a pure sense, and praise God for that promise. But in history, rest can happen. So what do we do? We fear God. We fear coming short of that promise. And usually when the gospel is presented, you, you know, God is, is wrathful, he's vengeful, he's going to punish sin, and if you, if you don't believe in Jesus who died for your sin, then his wrath will be poured out on you in hell forever. That's all true. <laughs> That's true. But one thing we should fear now is not entering his rest, because essentially that's what all of those other things are. So, so think soberly, soberly about it. Don't gloss over it. Don't treat it like it's just another thing on the buffet. Take it or leave it. You ought, your life should be marked by a pursuit of Sabbath rest. And Sabbath rest is only found in Christ, as we'll see. Verse 2. Verse 2 tells us that the gospel was preached to the Israelites way back then, and it is now preached to the Hebrews, the Christians who received this letter. So the warning continues. Don't leave something out of the recipe. If you've done that, you know it, it doesn't taste the same. It's not enough... Listen, it's not enough, especially children, listen very carefully, it's not enough to hear the word preached. 
It's not enough to have this kingdom gospel proclaimed to you. You must unite um, Mary and embrace it by faith. You must believe this gospel. Now, the Israelites heard the word and decided that unbelief, read disobedience, was the better option. Verse 3 says that when we believe, when our lives are marked by faithful obedience or an obedient faith, we enter that rest. When we believe, we enter that rest. And what is the rest? God's rest from creation. That's the answer, and more on that in a minute. The writer continues his argument by reminding those tempted to walk away from Christ and go back to the shadows of Moses that today is still the day for salvation. Now, Hebrews 3 and 4, is, it's, it's funny because uh, the writer continues to hone in on Psalm 95, and he's just like, you know, somewhere it says this, but don't forget this. And then he, he comes right back to Psalm 95. Again, today, today is a day of salvation. So follow this train of thought, all right? Make sure you, have, you follow along in, in your Bible. Uh, the train of thought starts in verse 6. There remains a Sabbath rest. You can enter it. It's possible. You can enter it. The Israelites in the wilderness didn't get it because of disobedience. Um, verse 7, today is the day to repent from all of this and turn to God. Verse 8, Joshua led them to rest, but it wasn't true creational rest. It was a pointer. It was a foretaste to rest in Christ. And then the con- verse 9, he comes right out and says it. There remains a Sabbath rest for people to enter today. As in 2018, people can still enter this rest. So so follow this train of thought. Now, verse 10 is interesting. I take verse 10 to be about Jesus. Verse 10 says, For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. I take that to be about Jesus himself. In other words, after, after God perfected his creation to how he wanted it, he rested. Also true, after Jesus perfected his new creation, what did he do when he got to heaven? He asked for the nations, right? And the Father gave him the nations, and now we're going to subdue the nations. But he sat down, and he sat down to do what? He rested. He didn't have to stand up and continue building his new creation. It was a done deal. It it all was there, and it has begun. So more on that again later. Now, because of all of this, then, verse 11 brings it all together. It says, Therefore, let us be diligent, be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. We'll come back to verses 12 through 16 later. So that's a quick overview of the argument here in our text, and and I want to dig into the issue of Sabbath rest. And this is the part where you're going to need to make sure your brain is quite exercised, okay? So if you need to stand up, that's fine. The key to understanding all of this in this passage, by the way, this was such a fun week of study, because some passages, like, they're just easy to preach, because, you you know, and you do your thing, but I I really worked hard in in this passage, because there is a ton of meat, and you'll see some things unlocked, um, and I'm giddy about it. All right. So uh, verse 4 is a quotation of Genesis 2.2, and so let's read it. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day. 
And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. That's a direct quote from Genesis 2, verse 2. Now, why would the author quote this verse and tie it together with this idea of Sabbath rest? And then not even just that, but tie faith and obedience to it. That's, that's the challenge when you're reading scripture. Ask tough questions. Um, you may not always get the answer. I know, I, Lord knows I don't always. But when you, when you ask the right questions, sometimes you can get to it. So why would he, why would he randomly bring up Genesis 2-2, connect this idea of Sabbath rest then to our faith and obedience inside of this rest? The answer is very, very simple, actually. The Sabbath rest, Sabbath rest is not a man-made thing. Don't miss this. Sounds very simple, but don't miss it. Sabbath rest is not a man-made thing. It's not a man-centered thing either. Um, I would argue the same things about the Lord's Supper and baptism. It's not a man-centered thing. It's not a man-made thing. It's a God thing. So this is essentially what Jesus came to fix when he critiqued the Pharisees and their aberrant theology of Sabbath. They had twisted this meaning into this man-centered, man-serving thing. And so instead of rest in God, it became whether or not you could walk a certain distance on the Sabbath day. It was twisted all up. This man-centered approach to the Sabbath day was the same problem of the unbelieving Israelites in the wilderness. That's the connection. They wanted God to serve them, to be under their sovereignty. And we we went over this last week, but in case you forgot, the plagues taken out of Egypt, walking through um, uh, the dry ground, Pharaoh's army goes after him, God drowns them all. (laughs) Great bedtime story. And... uh, and so they're standing there like, wow, this is incredible. And then, I don't know, maybe it was like five minutes later, they're like, well, you know what? We were better off in Egypt. So disobedience or unbelief, which is the same thing, as I mentioned earlier, um, those, those things, can't, you can't get into God's rest that way. All right? So they wanted God to serve them on their terms to be underneath their sovereignty. So this is why um, Jesus also said, he said in Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But what does that even mean? How should we understand this? The key to all of it is understanding the creation account, specifically why God created all things in six days and then rested on the seventh day. So God's rest, which is Genesis 2.2, refers to the completion of his work. However, God's rest is different than man's rest. God didn't rest on the seventh day because he was tired. Right, kids? If God can make all things out of nothing, uh, he's not tired. He rested on the seventh day because God's rest is about, listen, it's about enthronement. God's rest, his Sabbath rest, is tied to his enthronement. Listen to Isaiah 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? So, not to... um, Let's just point out the obvious. When you have a footstool, you're resting. Um, 
God, you know, that, that was the argument from last week, you know, in, in Acts twice, you know, God doesn't rest in these houses made by human hands. He rests in the universe. <laughs> His feet are propped up on, on the earth. So he, he's not impotent. He's exceedingly powerful. He's omnipotent. So God's rest is about enthronement. The prophets of Israel saw the seventh day Sabbath rest of God after his work of creation as the enthronement of God on not just any seat, but a seat of judgment. Think about it for a minute. What did God say after making everything? Genesis one thirty one. God saw all that he had made and behold, it was what? Okay, I tricked you. Hold on, there's, it, it was very good. There's a quality issue here. It's not just good, but it's very good. And then it says, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now, after making all things out of nothing, God the king sat down, propped his feet up on the earth, pronounced his judgment on the earth, which was very good. And then he celebrated his created work. Um, so in God, there, there is no work, then rest, like we normally think about it. God did not rest because he was tired. He rested because his work was complete. His rest is the enjoyment of his creational sovereignty. So God, God does not, he's not weary. There, you know, it's not like um, he has to go to bed and wake up and 7 a.m. is too early. Uh, the psalmist says that Israel's God never sleeps. He never sleeps. He's not tired. So, so this, is, um, this is what creational rest is. This is what Sabbath rest is. It's God's creational supremacy enjoyed. So this God of rest, he took the seventh day, the Sabbath day, and he used it as an opportunity to assert his sovereignty over all things. So don't miss that. This was an assertion of his sovereignty and his supremacy over creation. Now, here's the next question. All right, kids, I need your participation real quick, if you can remember this. When did God make man? Which day? Which day of creation was it? Do you remember? On the Wednesday. Did he say Wednesday? (laughs) No. No. I'll give you a hint. It's between five and seven. Hey, there we got it. The answer is, God created man on the sixth day. So chapter 2 of Genesis zooms in on and tells us how man was made on the sixth day. Adam was formed from the dust of the earth, and God breathed life into him. Ruah is the Hebrew word. It can can mean spirit or wind or breath. God breathed into Adam, and he became a man. Eve, his dominion covenant helpmeet, was then formed after Adam was put to sleep and his rib was removed to make her. So all of this happened on the sixth day. So the question becomes then, follow me here, when was man's first full day? Especially when you think about there was evening, morning, then the next day. Because the, the way time was... Uh, how it's identified in the Hebraic understanding, especially Genesis 1, it's, it's a little bit different. When was man's first day? The answer is very simple. He was created on the sixth day, probably toward afternoon, late evening. Okay? Even into the... In- Bingo. 
Good work, Jack. Good job. Man's first full day of existence was actually God's Sabbath day. The beginning of man's week before sin entered into the world was the Sabbath rest of God. Adam was made to enjoy the Sabbath rest of God from day one. Um, The seventh day for God was Adam's first day. So make sure you're tracking here, all right? The final day of God's week was the seventh day, the Sabbath day. The first day of man's week was the seventh day, the Sabbath day. So now all of this is tied to the issue of sovereignty. God, the true and only sovereign, he works six days, then rests. That's the assertion of his supremacy and his sovereignty. Man, who is subordinate to God's authority, was to start his week of dominion in the world with rest. Adam was supposed to start his work with rest. Rest one day, work six. Now, this is where it gets very interesting, and I'm indebted to Dr. Gary North for some of these observations. He talks about this in the Sinai strategy. So Adam and Eve probably succumbed to the serpent on the Sabbath day. There, can't exactly prove it from the text, but I th- well, I think you can, but you've you got to be careful. Adam and Eve probably succumbed to the serpent on the Sabbath day. And it's interesting, what day um, did God create animals? Same day, sixth day, same as Adam. They probably gave in to their sin on the Sabbath day. On the seventh day, which was man's first day, that's the Sabbath day of God, the land was left alone and man was left alone as well. Because if you remember, in the cool of the day, he comes to find Adam, insinuating that God actually was not present with Adam and Eve there. Uh, He would wait until the cross to crush the serpent's head. Um, so Adam and Eve were tempted probably on that Sabbath day because um, God was not there. He was not present. He would come later. So instead of resting underneath God's sovereign care and on the Sabbath day, Adam and Eve used it as an opportunity to basically subvert the sovereignty of God and not only that, assert their own autonomy, their own autonomous lusts. So the point here is this. Man was supposed to celebrate the sovereignty of God as portrayed on the Sabbath day rest, and he was supposed to begin his dominion obedience the very next day. Adam, however, obviously wasn't content with this. Adam and Eve, in capitulating to Satan's beguiling promises, wanted sovereignty. When, you, when Adam and Eve were tempted, they were... It's a very crafty thing, right? The serpent was now more crafty, the text says. That exchange was an attempt to usurp the sovereignty of God. You will be like God. You'll be sovereign like Him. You'll know good and evil. Not only know it, you will determine good and evil. You will be given um, God-like status. Satan tempted Adam and Eve divinity, essentially. So instead of starting with rest and working uh, those days under God's sovereignty... A man wanted to end his week with rest just like God. And so in this, they, they desired to be like God. And being like God meant working how God works. Man wanted a calendar week like God, six days of autonomy, right, self-law, a day of self-congratulatory rest. Aren't we great? We are fantastic. 
This Sabbath rest is about me. Maybe that's the conversation Adam and Eve had afterwards. I don't know. So this obviously was highly problematic, and it serves the, the undertone of all of Adam's rebellion. Without rest in God, this recreating rest, man would only work himself to death. Um, uh, God creates everything out of nothing, and then man recreates what God has made. So none of us are, are um, <clears throat> none of us are really good at just saying things and then they exist. Could you imagine if we could do that, kids? I mean, right? Ice cream cone, bingo! Right at breakfast, right? You could just say it. Uh, that would probably not be good. But without this rest in God, man would work himself to death. Now, don't forget the repercussions of his disobedience. God promised that man would surely die, and God also cursed the ground. Adam, basically, he forfeited his position as the steward, this king and priest uh, and prophet, as the steward over the earth. And as a result, God took this man of dust, and he brought covenant sanctions against him. You want to be like God? Go ahead. Toil with sweat. Have children in pain. Experience death. So unwilling to be in this subordinate position, Adam forsook God's gift of rest, and instead of taking dominion in the world, the next day he attempted to become the creative sovereign. Adam did not want God's rest because it meant that Adam could never be divine. He could never ultimately determine good and evil. He couldn't be sovereign. He couldn't be a true sovereign. Having been excommunicated from the garden, Adam's calling to take dominion over the earth as God's steward would now become very, very, very difficult. He would indeed work six days and then rest, but it wouldn't be rest, at least not God's Sabbath rest. Man was always supposed to start his week enjoying the God of rest, but now God would give him what he wanted. You want to be sovereign? Go try it. See how it works. Now fast forward through redemptive history from the garden. Now we get into the book of Exodus. Then comes the law of God and the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, 8 through 11 tells us, and this is the Ten Commandments, right? That God commands Israel to honor the Sabbath of their Lord, their God. They were to work six days and then they were to rest on the seventh. They um, They were to do all their work in six. They were to cease all work, including the work of their servants and their cattle. Why? Because that's how God functioned. This was a sobering reminder of Eden. When you read the Ten Commandments, think about that. This is a sobering reminder of Eden. Now fast forward again, all the way to the time of Jesus Christ. Jesus says in Matthew 5.17, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. He also says things like what we saw in Mark 2, right? The Sabbath was made for man. God gave Adam the Sabbath rest as a gift, not something that was to enslave him. Think about that. God gave Adam's first full day of existence. He gave him the gift of Sabbath rest to um, commune with God, to enjoy God, to walk with God. Uh, But Adam, of course, didn't want it. Adam chose to be a slave to his sin instead. Jesus also says a bunch of crazy things and does a bunch of crazy things, like heal people on the Sabbath day, which was apparently a big kerfuffle with the Pharisees. He even fed his hungry disciples at one point, violating the Sabbath, right? Violating this man-centered thing that it had become. How absurd of Jesus, right? 
the Pharisees, they had twisted the Sabbath around. Jesus came to undo the twisting. They wanted to be slaves in Adam instead of free in Christ. A couple more observations about Jesus. Um, this was also exciting. <laughs> God created the world in six days, right? It's a trick question you can ask me. How many days did God? Seven. Well, no, six. Jesus recreated the world in three days, half the time. Jesus himself was crucified on the day Adam was made. He rested on God's Sabbath in the tomb. And then as the gardener, remember in John, he was, he was uh, mistaken to be the gardener. He began his work of new creation on the third day from his crucifixion, which was God's eighth day, which was supposed to be Adam's first day of dominion work, his second day of life. The second Adam was a better Adam. And because of Christ's work in starting a new creation, building this new house for God, man now is restored to his calling in the dominion mandate. Adam twisted it up. Jesus straightened it out. Because only God can unscramble the egg. Let's um, unpack this a little bit more. Those in Christ, those in the house, the new creation... Um, who was who brought about uh, by the vehicle of the new covenant, are those who are participating in God's rest. If you are in Christ, and I include you children in that, you are a part of God's rest. The house that Jesus is building is a house of rest. It's a domain of peace, a peace that covers all of a man's life. I believe it's Isaiah fifty-seven twenty-one says that there's no peace for the wicked. That's an interesting way of describing it. There is no peace for the wicked. There's no peace um, for, for the president of Planned Parenthood. There is no peace for the wicked who would blaspheme God. They want peace, and they think they're getting it through their atonement, but they will never get it unless they turn to him. So Sabbath rest involves a life of faith and obedience. It's a state of covenant relationship, not meant to be just singled out for a ritual on a particular day, though we do gather on Sunday because in one sense, Sunday is the Lord's Day, if by Lord's Day you mean Jesus was raised. But don't forget that tomorrow is the Lord's Day too, and the next day, and the next day, because His mercies are new every morning. We are now in a different phase of redemptive history. Now, a quick aside, and I can't go into this too far. The reason Christians celebrate the Sabbath rest of God on Sunday is because Jesus was raised on the first day of the week. That's generally what, what we hold to, all right? We gather for word and sacrament. We gather for fellowship and edification on this day because of the resurrection. So every, every Sunday is Easter Sunday, essentially. Now, this change also happened because man is to start his weekly rhythm with rest, just like Adam. But that's another topic for another time. And let me tell you, it's as clear as mud. So here's what the Sabbath rest is. Sabbath rest is an ethical state of creational shalom. Sabbath rest is an ethical state. It's about ethics and obedience, right? Faith. It's an ethical state of creational shalom. Of peace. Sabbath rest is victory in time and space. Sabbath rest is victory in time and space. It's in history. 
The point of Sabbath rest is to bring a regenerated Christian into true and abiding rest in Christ. There are many Christians who celebrate Sunday as the Sabbath day, and it is anything but rest. And not just that, it's not even just rest in Christ. But that's a different issue, and I don't have time to go into it. So we enter God's rest, note this, not by seizing from work, but by doing restful work. Okay? We enter God's rest not by seizing from work completely. Remember, work was not a curse. Man was made to work. He was to toil and labor and make things. Um, So God didn't, you know, Adam, you sinned. I guess you can't sit on the ottoman anymore. You got to get up and go to work. Like Many Christians treat work as like this enslavement to God, and it's not. It's a joy and a privilege, and actually it's what you're supposed to do. Um, so we, we don't enter it by seizing from work. We do, it, we do restful work. You see, for God, for God, rest, his Sabbath rest, is the enjoyment of his creational sovereignty. But for man, rest was to be the subordinate enjoyment of God's sovereignty. We, we were supposed to rest in his enjoyment of himself. Um, but God, God, ended his, his, um, God ended with rest because he's the, he's the authority. He's the creator. Man begins with rest because he's God's dominion agent. He's God's dominion man. He's God's man for the task. Now, that was all the original intent of creation. Man's week is to start with rest because the only rest a man can get is in the crucified and resurrected Christ. Man's work and dominion must start with God. If it doesn't start with God, it is cursed. It's cursed. The point of the Sabbath day rest, like on, a, on, on Sunday, the resurrection Sunday, is not to enslave man to a calendar. The point is also not to enslave man to an institution, be it the state or the church, but rather to spur on the dominion covenant in time and space with spirit-fueled resurrection power. I'll say it again. The point of this is not to enslave man to a calendar. And the way people treat it, it's like that. It's It's also not to enslave man to an institution. Well, the pastor said I have to be here, so I guess I have to be here. And my kids have to sit here and be quiet. And that's hard. Nonsense. This is, like, we're happy. (laughs) This isn't a dreadful thing. So it's not for enslavement, but to spur us on in the dominion covenant in time and space with spirit-fueled resurrection power. We are supposed to love Sabbath rest because we have a high priest who who knows what it looks like to labor in the world for the glory of God. So we ought not to despise Sabbath rest. We should look forward to it, and we should be eager for it. If it's true, and Rushdie argues this in his institutes, that the church is not a terminal institution, and he's right, then it means that the institution's leaders, leaders should not act like man was made for the Sabbath. Now, <laughs> here we go. Regarding Sabbath violations and their accompanying civil penalties in Scripture. Uh, my understanding is that those things were abolished in the coming of Christ. There is to... There is to be no more, a, uh, the magistrate has no business punishing someone for a Sabbath day violation. Now that we've triggered all of our covenanter friends, here's, here's why I think that. 
If it's true, as Jesus said, that man was made for Sabbath and not the reverse, it could appear that those civil sanctions in the Old Testament, like the death penalty, say for you know something different, it could appear that, that God actually thinks different. No, maybe man is made for the Sabbath. In other words, it's like God viewed it the opposite way in the Old Testament, right? That man was made for Sabbath after all, right? The, the, he chose to penalize violators, right? Well, I don't think that's true. I don't think you can make that argument. Here's why. The reason that penalties were attached was because, one, it was a reminder of what Adam had chosen. Because you have to deal with the fact that God said, work six days and then rest in the Ten Commandments. But then you have to deal with a shift when Christ came and was resurrected on the first day. You have to deal with that. You can't just ignore it. So I think the penalties were there because, one, it was a reminder of what Adam had chosen, which was autonomy. And I think the Ten Commandments is God stooping down to rebellious man and saying, okay, you want it your way? This is how it has to be. And two... It was a ceremony, there were ceremonial connections, and it was a preparation, this didactically inspired illustration of the, serious of what it mean, the seriousness of what it means to rest in Christ, in God. Now remember, the law was given to Israel in a specific way, and we believe that there are laws that um, continue on into the New Testament uh, as, as God sees fit. Um, those things attached to ceremonies in the temple and the priests are gone, they're abolished in Christ. Um, but, but with regard to kidnapping and murder and things like that, God's law still abides. Um, we believe that here. But be, um, the law was given to Israel in a specific way, and that's because the nations were to see Israel's obedience and want to join in. Okay, so the law was always evangelistic. There was, we were, Israel was supposed to follow God's law, and the nations would look at them and stream in and say, "This, wow, what a God they serve. This is, this is fantastic. So Sabbath sanctions served as an evangelistic tool to demonstrate the futility of Adam as well as point to Jesus, who is in fact our true Sabbath rest. I think that's the point of Hebrews 4. Now that Christ has come in history, rest is actually possible. Not theoretically possible, not philosophically possible. It's actually possible. In the Old Covenant, true rest was future-oriented. In the New Covenant, it is now a present, uh, presently-oriented, even larger future-oriented promises. So the second Adam, that's Jesus, has undone what the first Adam has done. So the evangelistic function of it is still present, but the law went from tablets to hearts. So it's now, and I, this is, um, nor, I didn't read, he has an appendix in that book, The Sinai Strategy, I didn't read all of it, but... He argues that it switches from an institutional issue to an individual issue. And I I think he's right. Sabbath Sabbath penalties raise the cost of disobedience. But it all pointed to Jesus. So in Christ, now we have it. We have Sabbath rest. We could go on and on about that. We don't have time. But we've got to keep going. Sabbath is an inescapable truth. There is no neutrality. Man will have for himself a Sabbath rest. He will have for himself a dominion-oriented covenant of work. It's not ever if, but which. Which rest will he employ? Modern men today, modern man is working himself to death. Not necessarily because he's working too much, but because he has no rest. Apart from Christ the mediator, modern men work but to no end. From credit, credit card debt 
and all, all being a slave to, to all these de- to farming their children out to the state and all these other issues. Men are working today, but it's not because they're doing it from a position of Christ and not because they're trying to somehow um, uh, do his dominion work for him. It's all unfruitful. It's unfruitful for him. It's unfruitful for his family. It may produce some sort of economic viability for society at large. That's because Christ is no longer dead, not because they are being obedient. Steve Jobs helped give us the iPhone. Praise God for the iPhone. Steve Jobs did not believe in Jesus. Steve Jobs is facing the judgment seat. Steve Jobs will unfortunately and sadly rest himself without rest in hell. So apart from Christ, man will seek Sabbath rest in something. And oftentimes it's worship in material world and money and debt and all these other things. But it's instant gratification instead of delayed gratification. It's oriented toward the present and only the present. But it will never have a future. Kids, you should know something right now. What we are doing here is also for you. Okay? What we are doing here is for you. At some point, we have to pass the baton to you, the next generation, for you to continue to labor um, in this dominion covenant. Now, for the Christian, then, therefore, we must be diligent. We must be diligent, the text says, to see our gathering on Sunday or even ladies on Thursday night or the men on Tuesday night as the enjoyment of God's creational sovereignty, the enjoyment of Christ's dominion covenant by means of his law word. Sabbath, never forget this, Sabbath was made for man. And when we get caught up enslaving others to a day or to an institution, we miss the point entirely. Now I want to end with this, and I'm going to actually pick it up next week because it kind of dovetails into that. Look at how this passage ends in verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest and who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. We are to be obedient, not disobedient like the Israelites in the wilderness. But why? Why? Because the word of God is living. Because the word of God is active. It's sharper than any sword. It cuts deeper than any sword because it touches the heart and the soul of a man. If Sabbath rest is meant to spur us on toward obedience to the dominion covenant, and it is, then what means do we have for it? The word of God. The word of God. And not only the word of God, the eyes of God over all of us, as verse 13 says. So in all of our efforts of obedience toward God, we have a high priest, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who does in fact sympathize with our weaknesses, who was in fact tempted just like we are, who, who never sinned. Now that's a feature, not a bug. He never sinned. So in our time of need, in our time of sorrow, in our times of frustration, in our times of anger, in our times of despondency and desperation, we can draw near with confidence, the text says to his throne of grace, and we can find mercy and find help in our time of need. 
which means that through, though Adam, though Adam, in Adam we sinned, we sought our own devices, sought our own sovereignty. We are restored now through Christ's gospel. And this gives us hope as we worship the God of rest. So next week, we'll pick up this theme of Jesus being our high priest, um, Lord willing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have opened your word, and we trust that you have opened our hearts. Grant us the filling and power of your spirit so that we can be expedient in our obedience to your dominion covenant. Our hope is that through our meager efforts, you would bring blessing to this fellowship that our witness and labor in your rest would bring fruit to Warrenton and to all of Northern Virginia. Since you can indeed sympathize with us, Lord Jesus, would you grant forgiveness to us so that we can extend the same toward others? We ask of this because you are glorious and because we trust you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.